Come along with us as we explore the broad world of preservation and the work being done to preserve, interpret, and save our past in a 21st century world. From aquaculture to historic foodways to forensic modeling, we're talking weekly with experts from across the globe. This is your host, Nick Redding. Welcome to PreserveCast. Join us on this week's PreserveCast as we talk with Alyssa Lozapone and Chris Turgeon about preservation training opportunities at the Newport Restoration Foundation. Alyssa and Chris will provide us with background on this legacy preservation organization and the work they've done to establish a robust and successful preservation trade specialist training program, as well as what lessons were learned along the way and how that could help efforts like it around the nation. All that and more on this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. And today we're excited to be talking with two friends from the Newport Restoration Foundation. Um, and we're talking with Alyssa Lozapone, the Director of Preservation at NRF, as they call it, and Chris Turgeon, the Historic Trades Initiative Manager. And um, we're going to be talking all about the work that they do at the Newport Restoration Foundation, which some listeners may be familiar with, some may not. But Beyond just the work of NRF, we're going to be talking about this uh, preservation trade specialist training program, uh, how it was created, what it does, um, and uh, how it's impacting the field of trades training. But before we get there, as always, we love to get to know the people that we're talking to. Um, So perhaps we'll turn over to Alyssa first. Give us a little bit of background about yourself. Where did you grow up? Um, and what led you to the field of preservation? How'd you end up at the Newport Restoration Foundation? Sure. Thank you, Nick. Uh, we're thrilled to be here this morning. And I am from Connecticut, uh, still live in Connecticut and, and commute to Newport, Rhode Island for my job here at the Newport Restoration Foundation. And I've always had a love of history. Um, and I found the Cultural and Historic Preservation Program at Salve Regina University and thought that is That's the ticket. And my first probably job in the field was as a tour guide, which I would recommend for anybody looking to get into historic houses. It's a great way to interact with the public and and get to talk about the things that you love. Um, And so after uh, earning a graduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania, um, I came back to Newport for a few jobs and have worked Um, at the Preservation Society, also at the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office, before landing here at the Newport Restoration Foundation, where I've been for a little over four years. That's fantastic. And sort of, I'm curious, growing up, was there always an affinity for history preservation? Did parents drag you to sites or what's the story there? Yes, yes. There was always an affinity for history. Uh, Lots of history day projects in middle school and high school, um, I think. I will be embarrassed to hear this play back, but I did go to colonial camp at uh, the Noah Webster house in Hartford, Connecticut, where there was dressing up involved and cooking over an open uh, fire. So yes, there was always a love for history that brought me into the field. And I love how preservation allows me to apply that love of history in a very practical, pragmatic way. And that's, I think, what I love about preservation. Well, no, no shame about colonial camp. I, th- I think if I could get a sabbatical, I'd, I'd like to go on one myself. <laughs> maybe, maybe I could come to NRF and do a little colonial camp with you guys. There you go. Um, so let's take, take it over to Chris. Um, talk to us about your path to preservation, where you grew up and how you ended up where you ended up. Yeah, I took a much more unclear path. Mine was much more meandering. 
I grew up Midwest. I grew up in Detroit area and actually was really interested in architecture, but sort of veered off from that, went into business um, and then came back around to construction because I really love craftsmanship. So um, I actually did workforce development and worked in construction for several years. And then this opportunity with NRF came up and it was a great opportunity because I love nothing more than creating something new. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to come in and sort of really build from the ground up what we think is the way to handle this field. So it's been wonderful. And did you move purposely from the Midwest to the East Coast to, for this position or were you already out that way? No, I've actually been out here about 30 years. Um, I worked for a small startup called Staples. I've heard of them. That's where I started after college. So um, I've been at startups for a very long time. Like in this role is very much a startup role. Um, Fantastic. Great. Well, hopefully it's as successful as that little Staples thing. Oh, yeah. So um, maybe this is a place to turn it over to Alyssa. For those of you who aren't familiar listening to the Newport Restoration Foundation, um, maybe you could kind of explain to us um, what this organization does, its history, and then we'll kind of get into the trades piece. Sure. Yeah. So the Newport Restoration Foundation was founded in 1968 by a woman named Doris Duke, a philanthropist um, who lived in Newport, but had houses um, in various locations in the U.S. And it was really founded in response to urban renewal that was happening at the time. There had been a lot of previous preservation efforts in Newport, but when Doris Duke came on the scene, um, there was quite a bit of demolition and new development happening. Um, things like America, America's Cup Avenue and Memorial Boulevard were um, threatening to demolish entire neighborhoods. And so she stepped in with um, her great financial means and started buying properties and saving them, moving them, restoring them. At the time, she had a a very large crew of painters and carpenters and architects that were working for her. So the love of craft and appreciation of craft runs deep at NRF. Um, and to date, um, she, because of her, NRF has saved over 80 buildings and restored over 80 buildings. Um, we currently have a collection of 70 uh, 18th and 19th century colonial properties that we um maintain and rent to tenant stewards, larger residential tenants, but some commercial as well. Um, and we also hold our flagship property, Rough Point, which was for home and is opened as a museum, and then some sort of specialty properties, as I like to refer to them, like the Vernon House, um, which is a newer property for NRF. Um, and this is um, in a state of ongoing restoration, but is also being opened up for art exhibitions and sort of contemporary art engagement with the history of that site. So it's a pretty dynamic organization. Um, you know, like a, lot, like a lot of preservation organizations, it starts one way and it continues to evolve. And I know you have new leader, newer leadership. Uh, he's, he's, uh, Frank has been there uh, for a little while. Um, and actually a, a previous guest of PreserveCast, I think in our first season. Um, I think back when he was... Um, down in North Carolina. Um, but, you know, I it's you've mentioned all these different pieces and how there was craft and trade sort of at the at the outset. Um, but it seems like what we're about to talk about is somewhat new. How was the organization handling trades prior to what we're about to talk about? Was there 
you self-perform, but how are you training? Are were you engaging the public around this? Talk to us about like sort of the history of trades training within this sort of legacy preservation group. Sure. Yeah, I think it was kind of just inherent in what we did. So um, to clarify, we still have an in-house crew. So we self-perform the vast majority of our work. We have a crew of about 10 to 12, depending on the year and the season of carpenters and painters and systems experts. Um, And we have our own mill where we do a lot of um, our milling work. And um, to date, it's always been legacy. I mean, we are so, so lucky to have tradespeople on our staff that have been with us for decades, that have been with us for 30, 35, 38 years. We just celebrated the retirement of um, our senior painter who had been here 38 years. And so it has always sort of been just inherent in what we do is training um, the next generation to come on board and learn from NRF. But I think um, sort of the aging of our crew um, and the complexity of, of subbing out specialty work like masonry has made us realize that um, we really need to formalize this practice and we really need to um, think about how we're going to how we're going to give back to the community, both for preservation more broadly and for our own organization. How are we going to ensure that these skills are available to us for the next 50 years? So I think one of the interesting things here to, to kind of point out and perhaps make everybody around the country feel a little bit better is I think a lot of people look to like a Newport Restoration Foundation and think they've got it all figured out. Like they have the resources, they have this amazing collection of buildings, they have it all figured out. And I'm not saying that you don't, but I'm also suggesting that everyone is struggling with this issue, right? It is, it is a pervasive issue everywhere, even with a legacy organization with just this profound track record and, and this, you know, amazing history and, and great uh, legacy of stewardship. Um, we're all facing the same thing. So it, it, it feels good to know that it's a common challenge. It doesn't feel good to know that we're all, I guess, in the same boat. Um, but it's also exciting to see organizations like yours t- take a step forward and um, not only try and deal with how you're going to maintain your own resources, but how to engage the community around this. And so maybe that's a good place to kind of pivot over to Chris and talk about what exactly are you, are you doing? Because a lot of us kind of, you know, people kind of spin around and have, have wrung their hands about, OK, we've got to fix this problem and we should do something about this. And I love that NRF was like, all right, we're going to do it. And you were a big part of that, Chris. So talk to us about what that looks like at NRF. Yeah, so it was interesting when I came into this role to find out how little formality there was to training um, or career pathway building in this industry. Um, it was sort of amazing to me. I'm like, so where are the certificates? Where are there, you know, and it was really, really surprising to me. Um, so from the beginning, my goal has always been with this, with this organization is start to sort of figure out How could we structurally put things in place that sort of naturally lead to people growing their careers? So that was one piece of it, not relying on just knowing that the painter is going to teach the next painter. So how do we formalize those processes? So we've been working on that internally, just sort of making sure that internally we're doing more job shadowing. Internally, we're doing more sort of observations of other departments. So that has been a really big piece of it. Then externally, we really looked at 
what is it that we can bring to the table that will push the envelope forward on actually creating um, a more talent talented um, group of contractors that we can work with? So after several discussions of sort of, you know, Alyssa and I always like to say, we can't boil the ocean. So what are we going to use from our wheelhouse that we can do? So knowing that we have many properties, knowing that we have this in-house staff, we sort of then looked at, we would really look at mostly doing upskilling. So that was going to be our first for it, was going to be looking at upskilling a group of people who are already in the field and sort of bridging that gap. So through various um, various conversations, I've, you know, talking with Natalie uh, Henshaw and talking to Benjamin, um, we have been, Benjamin Curran, we sort of had this discussion around this is a great opportunity for the Campaign for Historic Trades and NRF to sort of work together on building a structure that then could be used for other organizations. So um, we've gotten into this whole thing with the great opportunity of being able to create programs that then other people can use. Um, this has always been the philosophy between both organizations to create something that other people can use. Um, it's a heavy lift to build those first programs, but um, we have really seen the benefit across the board with our internal staff and our external staff. Um, so this particular program, the Preservation Trades Program, um, is one that we worked on with Benjamin Curran at the Campaign for Historic Trades. He helped us create a curriculum. So what we ultimately did is create a curriculum that was really an introduction to all aspects of the preservation trades. So again, trying to bridge that gap between modern construction knowledge and preservation, that there is a gap in there, but sometimes people assume it's a chasm and it's not always a chasm. So it's bridging that gap. So this class really helps people sort of understand the fundamentals of preservation. It helps them talk about traditional building styles. We don't expect them to leave with knowing every building style, but now they start to understand the differences and why changes were made and why windows got bigger as we went along, things like that. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, we're obviously we're Preservation Maryland powers uh, preserve cast. We're the we're the, uh, the the person behind the curtain uh, making this all happen. And Preservation Maryland is also the home of the campaign for historic trades. We've been talking about this um, and thrilled to work with NRF. I mean, it was really a way for us to kind of cut our teeth and get this thing going and to have a partner that was going to put it into practice and kind of um, ground truth it um, and couldn't ask for a better partner in this um, and a better program and a better outcome. Um, and I was just going to jump in and say that, um, you know, you're, you're sort of talking about the way I've described it. And I'm curious if you agree is that you want to give folks who are particularly upskilling someone, the philosophy of preservation, which sounds very lofty, but it's just sort of a different approach, right? Like the goal isn't to move as fast as you possibly can. Like it perhaps is in sort of modern, um, carpentry or, you know, you're paid by, uh, the amount that you're doing. Um, and the, the goal is to retain as much fabric, which is sort of a different perspective. Um, so, cause people have asked us before, you know, well, what's the difference between the two? And to your point, it's not a chasm, but it's just sort of a different approach. Would you agree with that? Is that sort of how you've perceived it too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that, um, modern construction is very linear. You build one thing, then you go to the next thing, and you go to the next thing. And preservation is completely three-dimensional. So that's the biggest thing, is to have people understand 
that what they're working on is very three-dimensional and every single aspect will impact another piece of it. And with modern construction, a lot of that guesswork and a lot of that knowledge is sort of taken away because we've already solved it. But when you work in traditional preservation, the answer is not always clear. So you have to sort of get a really good understanding of the structure as a total and then figure out three-dimensionally how you're going to approach it. So it's just, it does take a lot longer. And the skill set isn't drastically different. You just need to be able to be more mindful of sort of the impact of every piece you make. Everything you do impacts another thing and how that's going to happen. I think that's one of the best explanations I've ever heard that I actually like want to like quote you on that and put that on a, on a bumper sticker or something, a very big bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> so talk to us about, you know, I knew you said upskilling, all that kind of stuff. Who is in this program, who is eligible to apply? What do they get when they're done? And what has been the result so far? And then maybe we'll kick it over to Alyssa and talk about sort of the future of it. But I'm curious, like, Talk to us about the mechanics of that because people listening are maybe are like, okay, I'm ready to relocate to Newport and, and do all this. What's what what what's a, what's ahead of me? Can I can I do this? Well, don't don't move here initially because it's way too expensive. <laughs> so um, so this program is really open to anyone in the Newport community, basically because we don't most people can't come here and find housing, especially in the summertime. Um, so it's really the Newport community. So what we're trying to do is build up the community that we have, but it is always open to take other people if they can find a way to get to Newport and do this. So it's generally people who've been in construction anywhere from two to 10 years is where we're finding the greatest impact. Um, We do have set plenty of people who've been doing this for years and years and years. And so their impact, they know more than they think they do. So we're finding the greatest impact is the one to 10 year people who've been working in general construction. And Newport has 54% of its houses are of historic age. So if you work anywhere in the Newport area, you're already working with historic fabric, whether you think of it that way or not. So most people in our programs have had some interaction, whether they realize it when they come in the door or not. Um, we also do look for people who are three-dimensional thinkers because it's just it's it's an absolute important piece of the pie. And I think our programs have been so successful is because we actually go through an interview process, not necessarily for anything other than to understand that they can mentally imagine what they're working on and sort of how they're going to take those skills and they can push them into their their work they're doing right now. So, you know, we've had people, we had one person who was actually a boat builder, but was doing historic restoration on the side. Mm -hmm. This class actually assisted him then in taking that step in moving his career over. He didn't realize how many skills he already had. So we sort of confirmed that. And then we allow him to then learn the new terminology and things like that, that then take him to that next level. So again, this is definitely an upskilling program. This is not for someone who doesn't know how to read um, an architectural ruler. This is really for someone who sort of know that an architectural ruler exists. And so where where are you seeing these folks end up? I mean, how long have you been doing it? Are you tracking people? What's been the impact? So we've actually really gone, I guess the only way I can call it is whole hog in the last year. So we decided we were going to do this and just go for it. So in one year, we'll have run three cohorts. And each one is 12 weeks. That means we've had people in the classroom almost half the year. 
um, which is sort of phenomenal and sort of astounding. And I'm exhausted now if I end up cohort three, but it's been great because cohort one, you're sort of building, you get that energy starting, and then you can build onto two into three and sort of refine it. Um, we're, as I said before, I'm mostly finding people who are, um, have been in construction a few years and want to move over to, to um, the preservation trades. Uh, Rhode Island is vast majority small businesses. So most of these people are continuing to stay in small businesses under 20 employees. Right. Um, the vast majority of our most successful people are in probably organizations under the size of 10 because they're really taking it. They're working in the field. They're not working in an office. They're working in the field and they're sort of taking those skills and putting them into action right away. Alyssa, I want to kick it over to you. I mean, any thoughts on that? And then I'm also curious about what the future of this looks like. Sure. Yeah. I wanted to add that we we have hired from our own training program and we are also sending um, our staff to the training program. So each cohort has had a member of the NRF crew um, or preservation department in the class, because as Chris alluded to earlier, um, this whole initiative has really opened up our eyes, not only to external training, but what we can and should be doing for our own staff um, and investing back in them as well. And so we have hired from the training program. So hopefully that speaks volumes to the benefit we think it has. And we also have placed um, some students or trainees um, with partner organizations um, that actually have been supporting the training program. So we're happy to see them kind of thriving at these new um, contractor organizations that specialize in preservation. So that's been really exciting to see. Um, and speaking more broadly, I think, um, you know, we, we went um, for the first year thinking, well, let's build it and see if they'll come. Um, and it was a little bit of um, a dive into the deep end. And we were so grateful to have Preservation Maryland in the campaign for the historic trades um, with us hand in hand doing this. Um, and now sort of our next phase is to pilot sort of the business end of it. So we've built it. People are coming. They're interested. Um, and now will they pay for the classes? What is it worth to them? Um, now that we can show some results, um, can we get corporate sponsorships from other contractors? and um, material supply companies and things like that. And then, of course, there's always the private funding angle that we're working as well. But I think um, we're really excited about what we've built. And now our job is to, now that we've built it, get other people excited about it and see the benefit it can have in the community. Um, we're hoping um, to expand the subject matter content um, next year and maybe start exploring um, masonry, perhaps. That's been sort of the one of the most popular um, trades that people seem to really need and want here in our community. We're always trying to be responsive to what our community needs um, because it doesn't make sense to, to build it if it's not going to benefit the people that are going to use it. So that's something we're going to explore next year. Um, the initiative is part of a, a much broader initiative that um, Frankie Vignoni, our new president, um, has established sort of our, our five pillars moving forward, his vision for the organization. And the trades is part of what we're calling restoration at work, technology and skills. And so it's part of a, a broader um, a broader effort here at NRF. And we hope to integrate it um, with other 
efforts like affordable housing and keeping history above water and energy efficiency, the trades is a theme that runs through all of that. And so we're hoping to integrate it in that way. So we're really, really remain hopeful and excited. Um, There's such a strong need for it here in Newport. And of course, as you know, Nick, nationally. And so we just want to be a small piece of that puzzle. Uh, Again, as Chris said, we're not trying to boil the ocean alone. So um, just one piece of it. You're being humble in that you're a small piece of it. I think NRF, again, is playing a leadership role. That they've always been in that place. And um, I think a lot of the country is looking to programs like this. There's going to be a lot of interest in, in, this, um, in this recording, and we're going to send it out wide. Um, because I think there's a lot of lessons here for people to take a look at this program. I think it'd be great to kind of do a white paper or a deep dive on what worked, what didn't work, the cost associated with it. And I think we're all in the same boat of we've launched efforts. You know, ours is sort of in a, in a different vein, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's the, in the, in the same key or something like that, uh, to mix metaphors. But, um, it's, uh, you know, now we're all trying to figure out the business side of it. How do we make these things sustainable and run? Um, and you know, to Chris's point, there's just been so much missing in terms of formalization in this. And, um, you know, it's not, not the moment to talk too much about the apprenticeships, but we have registered apprenticeships with the Maryland department of labor for historic trades and are now working with the U S department of labor to pursue national registration of that, which hopefully will add some value and potentially even funding sources for all these types of programs. So I can't say enough good things about what NRF is doing and how it's been uh, a program that we at the campaign and others can point to to say this is how it should be done. Here's an opportunity for people to learn um, and excited to see what NRF continues to do um, under uh, both of your leadership. Um, It's just just great stuff. And I'm so glad that we were able to kind of shine a spotlight on this. Um, If people want to learn more about your program, where would you send them to, Alyssa? I'm actually going to turn that question over to Chris. What is our uh, what is our new uh, email address and website link, Chris? Yep. So we uh, the email they can actually just to reach out for information is trades at newportrestoration.org. So that's an easy way to go. Uh, we're actually currently just going to be uploading a new website. And on that website, there will be more information on the trades. If you currently go to the current website, there's not a lot on that. So it's best to even just reach out directly through that email address. But I would say in the next three months, the new website will be out there and there'll be more information on the website, which is newportrestoration.org. Well, we'll put that in the in the show notes and let's have you back again in a year and let's talk about where everything is. Um, and uh, just want to thank again, NRF, to your board and your leadership for um, giving you guys the runway to do this and excited to see where this heads. Thanks so much for joining us, both Alyssa and Chris. It's been great having you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.